start stories they're also like always so random they're like yeah we just started it yeah yeah i think that's how you should do it instead of just waiting and planning i i get it planning is good when you have but it's like man you know let's just start doing it and just keep walking and see how we go yeah figure it out as you go man yeah hit the ground i love that the the good thing this podcast is it gives us the opportunity to steal perspective as harman puts it and uh talks people that we ordinarily wouldn't get to talk to in our ordinary lives yeah i find that yeah when you meet people like you take something from them and yeah when i had when i had my interview podcast it was always like really cool just to like get to hang out with people that i i look up to and i learned a whole bunch of you know random things i never expected to learn from them yeah and it's you know it's cool when you get to normal your everyday life it's hard to meet these people you know who are talented or special who are doing things in their own area you it's hard for them it's hard for you to meet those people every day and once you can do that in an hour so you learn so much from it mm-hmm. and also you know how they say that human brain um, only remembers like 80 percent for the first day and you forget like 80 percent mm-hmm. in like three days it's recorded and it's going to be on the internet forever. Yeah, I keep forgetting about it. And then it's going to be on the internet forever and it just stays there. You can listen to it. People can listen to it and, you know, yeah. I think it's good. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's like by day three, you remember like 7% what was said. and But you remember exactly how you felt when oh, you were with that person. Yeah. 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 Which is always interesting. It's, it's like, do people feel like sunshine or do they feel like a dark cloud? That's like my thing. I'm like, oh, that person was sunshine. That person was a dark cloud. You know yeah. who to like hang out with again and not. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Man. And how's how's the podcast going, guys? Like, how's it going for you? And um, yeah, how are you finding it so far? So um since this is a two-man podcast, so Dan would bring guests that he's fascinated with, and I would bring guests that I'm fascinated in. And then we both get to experience and taste people of different genres. And, you know, as yeah. I said, steal their perspective or just learn from them. Mm-hmm. Given that we're very young, we're very, very young, you know, we're starting, we're just starting. This is like a first stage, first step of podcasting. And it's going great in terms of learning, but the whole reason I wanted to have you on was that I could learn and speed a steel perspective and how to upscale it because as fun as hobbies are, mm. you have to monetize them mm-hmm. because you're paying for them. Moreover, it's not about money. You're putting in time. Mm. So I, I think one of the best things about this podcast as well is that we'll bring guests on that completely takes takes us by surprise oh yeah so mm. the one that we've got out there the most recent one that we've released with david hobson who's an opera singer when yeah. i was when i brought him on um harman was was a bit oh really dan an opera singer but but as soon as we got into that one that was <laughs> one of our all-time favorites i literally said that's oh cool <laughs> i don't know i don't know opera singer i don't want it to be boring because i think that I should be making content that's engaging, that's interesting. I don't know, opera singer would be just boring. I don't know if people would be engaged <laughs> with it. And I had that negative mindset, which the moment David Hobson stepped in, 
I think by far one of our best episodes. That that guy was so passionate, very engaging, very, very engaging, passionate, very yeah, passionate. You know, and man, mm. what a great episode it was. So again, it it was you know you make yeah. mistakes, you learn. I was like that negative mindset is <laughs> helping. So uh, you yeah. on that. Right. People will shock you, man. Yeah, like like I met a guy, like this is kind of random. I met a guy at the airport like yeah. a month ago. And um, he was like Tom Cruise at cocktails, man. This guy was fired up. I'm just like commuting through. I'm just like, hey man, like eyes falling out of my head. I'm like, yeah. can I get a coffee? He's like, yeah, man, what, what kind of coffee you want? I was like, oh shit, like uh, uh like a latte and two. And he's like, got you, man, I got you, bro. Like, where you going? And he's just He's just jazzed about his job. I'm like, man, you're freaking pumped to be making coffee. He's like, man, every day you wake up, you make the most of it because you don't know if you're going to open your eyes the next day. And I'm like, whoa, like we're getting like a Tony Robbins speech from this dude. And, uh, but yeah, man, passion's contagious, dude. That's for sure. And I think like people will shock you, man. I met some people that have like, you know, what would seem like a boring background, but they're, they're tremendously, you know, charismatic or they've got a fun set of stories that they can share with you and, yeah, that's cool. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Right, let's, get, let's get started into it officially. Please. Okay. Yeah, uh, man. Cool. Do the intro. Uh, welcome to another episode of Game of Life with Dan and Harmon. We're joined by Dane Walker today. I'm a big fan of your work, man. Um, I think what you're doing is you're educating people on stuff, on, on, on educating people on what I think most people I've seen, including me, who are sort of afraid to go to that territory of branding and marketing. And I've seen people shy away from that. So just to start off with a with a with a you know, like a most random question, what is a brand? How important is a brand? And what's the difference between a brand and a personal brand? So it's like a three-question jumped into one, but it's sort of in the same territory. Yeah, man. I think for me, um, you know, I, I take a lot of my teachings from others that have come before me and worked in this industry. And, um, you know, Marty Neumeyer says that branding is not your logo. It's not your color palette, your website, your content. Uh, it's a feeling I get in my gut about your company or you as a person. Yeah. So, for example, like, how do you feel about Nike? How do you feel about Harley Davidson? How do you feel about, you know, Fallout Boy, the band, or Michael Jackson, or mm. Arnold Schwarzenegger? Like that relationship that you have, or the feelings that come up, that perception you have of something uh, is branding. Mm. And what I do as a profession is I, I help people kind of engineer what they want to be perceived as. So, you know, if you take Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was a bodybuilder, then he became a movie star, then he became a politician. And now he's kind of like this keynote speaker that travels the world and occasionally does a movie. So, you know, he's gone through different rebrands, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, to define what it is, it's really like engineering how you want others to perceive you. So if you're a personal brands, which we work with, we work with musicians, authors, keynote speakers, coaches, uh, we've worked with athletes. And, you know, usually when we sit down with them, we do a strategy session. We're trying to identify, like, what's your story? Like, why do you exist? Um, what do you want to share with people? What impact do you want to make? 
uh, what's your personality type and who do you gel with? Um, who should pay attention to you and why should they care? And we kind of elicit these questions mm. uh, and oftentimes they can't just directly answer them. So we have to like play games and do different workshops and figure it out. But um, branding, it's a, it's a game of perception. It's really trying to have people uh, think and feel about you in a certain way. So for example, um, recently I was on stage doing a keynote and that dramatically changed people's perception of me. Uh, so I did it in my hometown on the Gold Coast. And um, I had people from high school, uh, teachers, family members, friends I hadn't spoke to in years, just reach out and just be like, what the hell are you doing these days? Mm. Like their perception of me went from guy I went to school with, guy I worked with, um, to Dane's a keynote speaker about branding. Like it was, yeah. you know what I mean? It's it's shattering their perception of who they thought I was. Um, and that doesn't always happen immediately like that. You know, uh, it, it can take time. So, you know, if if I look back a couple of years, I was working in retail, selling mobile phones and, you know, I felt quite inspired to start making content about marketing, advertising and sales, because that's my passion. And even though I was working in this retail job, you know, previous to that, I'd been a graphic designer for six years in a print press shop. Uh, making merchandise and, you know, figuring out what designs get attention when you put them in the window. So if you design a t-shirt, hanging in the window in a retail store, like what gets people to walk in? Um, so I learned a lot about like marketing and perception. I built their website. I did their photography. Uh, I ran their ads. I produced their content. So like every job I've had since I was probably about yeah 19, I've mm -hmm. always ended up being their social media guy uh and they're like hey we need to update our website i'm like i can do that they're like what i'm like yeah let me jump in i'll i'll edit it and do the design and pick the font so like <clears throat> i've always kind of been branding since mm -hmm. i was young but just didn't really know that's what it was um even back to when i was 13 i used to be uh in like an online gaming community that mm -hmm. had thousands of members and my responsibility was to design the websites um you know, pick the fonts, design the icons, um, create, you know, digital trophies for the winners of tournaments and things like that. So like ever since I was 13, I was always kind of tinkering with perception, tinkering with design. Um, and yeah, honestly, just kind of didn't realize it for such a long time. Uh, and then when I saw uh, Gary V get on stage and share a keynote about starting a business, I felt inspired and um, that plus of maybe a displeasure for my job mixed with, uh, you know, my fiance at the time working at an agency and having seen them handle clients and getting an inclination that I could possibly do better than what they were doing. Uh, I was like, man, I kind of know a lot about design and a lot about marketing and advertising. And, um, you know, so it was a big part of me and, and I've been doing it since I was 13. So when I was at the phone store uh, selling devices, I I started producing content. But back to the perception thing, um, people at work were like, what's the deal with your Instagram? Like, they didn't get it. Like, what are you even talking about? What's this marketing stuff? And I was like, oh, I'm talking about design and logos and, um, you know, sales and psychology and perception and mindset. And everyone was kind of like, oh, okay. Like they didn't get it. 
Yeah. Um, so their perception of me was like, I just work with you. Like, I don't want to think about this other stuff, you know? Uh, but I continued to post content every day and um, started meeting people online that were like, this is great content. Like I'm really learning a lot from this and I'm enjoying it. And that stoked the fire and the joy of knowing people were enjoying it um, was enough to keep me posting. And it wasn't really, I didn't have this goal of like, I want to be a millionaire or whatever else. It's just like, oh, I want to like produce content, have fun doing it, share cool ideas and meet cool people. And um, really it was about, for me, just desiring community of like-minded people. Um, but their perception of me was very different to the people I worked with. So the point is my branding at work was just the guy I work with, but my branding virtually was, oh, this guy's a marketing mm. guy and an Instagram yeah content creation marketer and yeah so like it's it's interesting how you can engineer a perception virtually uh with strangers and yeah. they'll think there's something different yeah like yeah initially when you were young you switched from people consuming marketing adverts just consuming as normal but you switched and you're like okay i'm gonna make content and you know give people out a you know a perspective a perception how big do you think for you initially or over the period that you've learned how big learning the psychology of the masses was yeah i think it's part like learn intuitively through experience so for example when i was working in retail i worked in this um it's quite a busy shopping center like a mall and uh, we had like a tiny little store, maybe no bigger than someone's master bedroom. And the walls were just covered in t-shirts and hats and stickers. Yeah. And um, my job was to design stuff that brought people in the shop. So for me, it was just years of experimentation. Like, oh, if I use this color and use this font and I write something funny and hang it in the window, people come in. So like, I think, you know, that's when I started to learn, oh, I'm pretty good at like, figuring out what people think so i at that point in time you know i was 19 i was just experimenting and yeah. just paying close attention to who looked at what and when they walk in the store i'd be like where did they walk first what did they pick up and mm -hmm. then i'll go talk to them hey like who are you shopping for are they shopping for themselves or their partner or is it a gift so i i just really enjoyed uh kind of the mystery of like why people are doing the things that they're doing mm -hmm. um and then you know, even when I was a young kid, like when I was, I think I was 15 at the time, I was in high school and uh, I noticed that the canteen, um, we call it tuck shop here in Australia. So it's yeah. like where you go to buy your lunch or your snacks and they ban chocolate and they ban lollies and ice cream uh, and any like junk food that were like, it's banned. You can only buy healthy options. Mm. And I was 15. I was like, oh yeah, this is not knowing about supply and demand, but just kind of intuitively knowing that people are still going to want to buy that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I took two backpacks to school. I took one full of um, chocolates and lollies and chips and uh, soda and ice and the other one full of my books. And I remember walking around at lunchtime because um, I didn't really have like one friend group, I liked constantly meeting people and kind of moving between friend groups and just hanging out with a whole bunch of people, like networking, if you will. So um, yeah, networking came intuitively to me as did supply and demand, I guess. Uh, and I was making up to, you know, 60, 70 dollars 
uh, every month. And then I'd take that money and then I would pay the smart kids to do my homework and my assignments. And I was like, man, this system's great. I don't have to do schoolwork. I can just sell candy uh, and get, you know, good grades in school. So, you know, a bit of entrepreneurship. Um, then after that, the retail situation. So it felt, you know, I don't believe someone's born um, yeah. with talent per se, but I kind of just was curious and interested in it. Yeah. And then after the retail store, um, I started studying psychology and uh, neuro-linguistic programming, which is what like Tony Robbins teaches at his events. And um, yeah, for me, it was like a fascination because as a kid, my mother was on and off alcohol and drugs. And honestly, it was just kind of curious to understand like why she did what she did when she was, when I was a kid. Um, so fascinated uh, by like what drives people emotionally, why they do things that they don't necessarily like, like she wasn't proud of it, but she couldn't help it because she was addicted. So like I looked into, you know, uh, you know, behavior psychology and how people make decisions and why they make decisions. So like, it's an amalgamation of like fascination with psychology. And then I started reading about consumer psychology and then marketing psychology. And just, there's so many books and so much online you can read about this stuff. So, you know, furiously reading like hours every day for years about all this stuff. And what happens is you start to notice the patterns. You read the material and you're like, okay, sure. But then you see it in the retail environment. You're like, oh, this is real. Yeah. Um, and my favorite one is like the, uh, the emotional states people go through to buy stuff. So I'll give you an example. I bought a TV recently and I, my fiance came to me and she said, we need a second living room in the house. And at the time it was just full of junk. Like we had this room in our house that was just like where we stored all that crap. But it's like a really beautiful room that we just didn't use uh, for whatever reason. And I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm going to make this the coolest room in the house. I just dedicated my whole weekend to it and um, measured the room, bought the furniture, all the rest of it. But I remember when I went to go buy the TV for the room, I went into the electronic store and they're like what do you ask i said i need a tv and she said what kind of tv do you want there's like 400 options on the wall I'm like, oh, man, i don't know uh so like my emotional state was i gotta get this done so i was like in an immediacy state i'm like i gotta figure out a tv i don't have much time like just freaking pick one um and then i went into curiosity right so i was like well what's the difference between that and that and explain this to me and i was just getting stuck in this state of curiosity and then I felt overwhelmed. I'm like, oh, there's too many decisions to make, right? So I'm going through these different emotions. Yep. And then when she got me was when she was like, Dane, what do you like watching on TV? And I said, Formula One, like all weekend. She's like, oh, cool. She's like, I recommend this one. It's got the best display. It's got the best frame rate, the best like, <clears throat> you know, XYZ for sport. And then uh, my emotion went to excitement, mm. made the purchase. And then driving on the way home, I'm, I'm feeling regret because I'm like, Man, yeah. do I really need this TV? Like, I don't have time to watch Formula One. I've already got another TV. But like, yeah, I think consumer psychology is crazy because companies engineer this. They engineer what emotional state yeah. someone has to go through to make the purchase. So Nike, their cycle is their voice is about power and action. Mm -hmm. uh, so Nike's about, it's not about winning, but it's about like doing the work. So they know athletes 
feel that way. So they use that messaging and that type of photography to pull them in and go, I'm paying attention, Nike. And then they, they go through this uh, emotional cycle and where they try to get you to land is feeling confident. So if they, can, if they know if they can make an athlete feel confident um, to go play the sport, they'll make the purchase on the shoe. That's the athlete's cycle, but there's also like a consumer's mm. cycle as well. So I just geek out on this stuff, man. I just think it's cool. Yeah. I love how, how amazing your observation is. And I love how since the beginning of your time to, that you started working or even back in high school, that candy hustle, you have done a lot of practical work and it's been all trier and error. Um, especially with the t-shirt shop, I'm guessing that you must have tried something, didn't work. And you tried other thing, it didn't work. And this works. So that practical uh, knowledge and practical experience spoke so highly to you. And I think that's, 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 it's invaluable to a human being, um, given that people go out and do degrees. Did you ever study marketing? Uh, I've taken a lot of programs. I've never gotten a degree. Um, so I don't have any college education. I don't have any university education. Um, I do believe in education. So my two word brand, uh, that we have started to use as of like two weeks ago is the academic outlaw. So I'm academic by nature. I love learning. Like I will spend a whole day consuming material and reading the most boring shit you could even fathom, right? Like just reports. And I'm like, this is fascinating. Look at these statistics and numbers, right? Um, so yeah, I there's so much material uh, in the form of books and you can learn directly from agency owners. Like I've read all of David Ogilvy's material, Alan Watson's material. I've read all of, um, you know, uh, you know, Marty Neumeyer. Mm -hmm. um Seth Godin like Simon Sinek and then there's like all these authors you would never have heard of that have written huge books about marketing and branding and what fascinates me is you know I always have this itch I'm like should I go get a degree like for sure but I've spent it well and truly into the six figures working directly with people like Mark Ritson Marty Neumeyer I've met Seth Godin spend time with these guys and like learned directly from them. Um, and every single one of them says a university degree is pretty much useless. Um, and every day I get DMs, people are like, Hey, I'm studying marketing, but I'm learning more from your content than I do from my professor. And it's just like, I don't know. Um, but we're killing it. Our clients are all winning. Our agency is doing really well. So I, I've, I've almost gone maybe the dirt road to get to the same destination. Um, which is what the team say. They're like, you you figured out the system, but you've just taken the dirt road to get to the same place. <laughs> I wouldn't call you the dirt road. I think that's much preferable because that's a real life experience. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. For example, me studying photography from RMIT and me watching yeah. a few videos, I'm going to say learning was sort of equivalent. Like I learned so mm. much from YouTube videos that while hmm. I went to uni, I was looking around. No one had answers. I knew no. shit. I knew like what they're going to teach next. I knew it. Like hmm. it tell what, where it was going, what, where, what we were doing. But people around me was like, we don't know. So <clears throat> 
And here's, here's another question that we just talked about Nike recently that you, you said that how they want you to land on something or purchase. How does marketing of a massive brand like Nike versus a smaller business that wants to come on board with you look like? What, what's the difference between those two? And what's the difference between how those two business operate? Yeah, I think, you know, success leaves clues. And once upon a time, Nike was pretty small. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it wasn't like they started winning recently. They were winning early on and they got branding right at the beginning. And there's a funny story. So like Phil Knight um, went to a logo designer and said, I need to figure out a name for this brand. I need to figure out a beautiful logo. And, um, you know, she designed a Nike tick swoosh and she presented it to Phil and she's like, here's all the reason why this is great. It's sleek. It fits up the side of a shoe. It represents the God, the wings of the goddess of victory, Nike. Um, and uh, it's an arc of movement, which is what you asked for. And he just said, I don't like it, uh, but maybe it'll grow on me. And now that logo is worth $78 billion, just the logo. Like if Nike sold the tick, it's brand equity is worth $78 billion just for the tick. Um, so, you know, it, it didn't start that way. I think he paid her like the equivalent of like $300 for yeah. the logo. Uh, but she does have she does have shares in the company, so she she really did win. Um, but like the difference between Nike and then a brand, let's say a shoe brand that's starting, it's it's really the same game that they're playing because humans are the same. Mm -hmm. So if you if you flip it the other way and go, well, the market and the way people behave, it's the same. So mm -hmm. I always encourage people because people say, well, I can't be Nike. I'm like, why not? Like they're not doing anything that's uh branding doesn't cost billions of dollars the market research yes but inventing a brand doesn't cost billions of dollars and what we teach our students and what we teach our clients is like let's let's learn from the successes in your industry so when we work with law firms we're like who's killing it with branding if we're working with apparel we're like who's killing it with branding so like we almost like look at the chessboard and we say oh all your competitors are all over here where's the opportunity so for a small brand, we're always like, hey, how do we create your thing, your edge, your X factor, your secret herbs and spices? Like, how do we invent something? Client rarely knows, but we work through a workshop and our role is as strategists to identify where's the risk, where's the opportunity, uh, where can we where can we invest um, and how do we get the, the craziest, biggest outcome? And we've had people that have come to us that have full-time jobs, that have emptied their bank account, sold their car, invested it with us to build a brand. And then within a month had million dollar offers for their companies. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Um, and if you're a small company, the main things you need to think about is like, how is your company communicating? Like imagine your company is a person, like how is it communicating to the audience? It doesn't matter how big or small you are. If you just focus on that, how are we actually communicating what we're doing? And I'm not talking about our features and benefits. You should buy my product for da, 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 like these reasons. Features and benefits aren't, is not branding. That's just information being exchanged. Communication is like, 
Like we're Apple, we believe in being different. We mm. challenge the status quo. Um, we don't, you know, we don't make mobile phones. We make iPhones. We don't make tablets. We make iPads. We don't make laptops. We make iMacs, right? So that everything Apple does, it's contrarian. So their personality type is anti what you think we are. We're actually this other thing. And they kind of do everything quite differently. Yeah. Um, so you can exist in the same industry as your competitors, but how you communicate it and how you present yourself could be totally different. So what Steve Jobs noticed in the 80s was all the computer companies were overcomplicated. Hewlett Packard, IBM, um, Dell, they were using very like crazy technical jargon that people didn't understand. Like throughout the 90s, they used graphic design that was just gnarly and overwhelming. It felt like you were on a mushroom trip when you're looking at the packaging design. And then Apple says, well, everyone's doing that. Let's just do a white box with the logo on it. Yeah. And everyone's speaking technical jargon, features and benefits. Let's talk emotionally. So when they brought out the iPad, uh, the iPod, they didn't say, you know, it can, um, it's got XYZ memory, XYZ display, XYZ buttons, it's XYZ size. They just had a film clip of people dancing, mm -hmm. listening to their favorite song. And then it just said a thousand songs in your pocket, right? So how Apple was communicating was through simplicity and through innovation. Um, so that could be verbal communication. It could also be visual communication. So everyone had crazy package design. Apple just had white. So when you would walk into a tech shop, you're looking at all these crazy blue, you know, uh, textures and spirals and graphics. And then you just see a white box. It's going to yeah. stand out. You're going to be curious. You're going to walk over to it. So how your brand shares the story um, through emotion uh, is, is how you can captivate people. And I think, the same things happening with Nike as, you know, Sandra, who's starting a hairdresser at the corner of her neighborhoods. They're playing the same game. Branding is the same at every scale. Um, where it changes is like how it's managed. So for example, Nike has to work with tens of thousands of partners. How do you delegate all of them to keep the branding on track? Mm -hmm. um, that's where it gets more complicated. That's more of management and delegation, but the core of the brand, the heart and soul of the brands, um, it's it's really the same thing. It doesn't really have scale. Um, it seems like it has scale because tens of millions of people buy it. So, uh, but it just means that the messaging is more potent. The more hype there is around a brand, it's just a sign that they have really potent messaging and they have really good design and they really understand their tribe and their community. Um, most business owners I meet, I sit down, I'm like, who's your target audience? They're like, women, 25 to 45. I'm like, how do I target that? Like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, she likes to have nice things. I'm like, this is not what I'm talking about. Like, how do they see the world? So there's a brand called Liquid Death. I don't know if you guys know of it, um, but they know their audience. They're like, why would someone drink a can of water with a flaming skull on it and it says the word death? Well, that brand was engineered for people that skate, people that go to punk concerts, people that like things that are gnarly and aggressive. Um, they know their tribe. 
they're like, they don't want to drink Mount Franklin water or Voss water or vitamin water. They want to drink something cool. So it's just water, but the branding wrapped around the water communicates potently to a certain type of person. And that person sees the world in a very different way than maybe my mom does. Um, So yeah, most business owners don't know the psychology of who they're trying to talk to. And that's, that's a big thing we try to help people find, figure out. How, how do you figure that out? How, how does a company figure out their target audience? Yeah, there's a few different ways. So in marketing, uh, you can host um, like study groups where you'll bring in, let's just say uh, I'm a biscuit manufacturer. I could get, you know, eight or nine different recipes of my biscuit. I'd invite, you know, let's just say my target audience is like, we think it's like from statistics, it's like young mums, just as an example. And then you invite a whole bunch of them into a facility and you get them to taste it uh, and you get them to, you know, fill out a report. So like there's the the old school marketing way of like trying to yeah. trying to actually uh, troubleshoot it and tissue test it on, like a, a group of people that you assume are your target audience. Um, it's it's different depending where they're at. So someone who's yet to create a company, let's just say they're working with me and they're going to create something that's new. Um, so for example, yesterday I was working with a supplement brand uh, for people that lack focus. Um, and it's for people that have ADHD, essentially. Um, and she knows that... Uh, the ADHD community have a certain uh, set of impulsive, like, you know, things that they gravitate toward because she has ADHD and she was explaining it to me. And like the buying sequence, she's like, this is how she's experienced it because she has a community of people that have ADHD and she, you know, she has it herself and she was explaining it all to me. So she has an inclination or a hunch as to what it may be. Um, and again, she could go do market research if she had the budget for it, but not everyone does because she's bootstrapping it. So we are trying to do our best to just pull pieces of information from all these different places. And she didn't know when I asked her directly, I'm like, who's your audience? She's like, I don't know. And it took maybe three hours of just like unpacking it through different frameworks, different mental exercises. And we're like, what if this happened? What if that happened? What if this happened? And just walking her through all the situations. And we've got all these little pieces of information and we started threading them together, kind of like fabric. And then we present it back to her. Like, so you think your community is probably like this? And she's like, that's, and she, she had goosebumps. She's like, I think so. Like that's, yeah. she's like, that's what I would think. So that's like a startup. Medium-sized businesses, usually they've worked with, you know, hundreds of clients. And we say to them, like, who's your target audience? And usually they just say, we get a, why make the people I'm like okay um like which ones are your favorites though and they're like oh our favorite clients are like this and then you start to notice there's a pattern in their favorite clients right maybe they're um entrepreneurs that like taking risks for example which is one we identified recently like how do we speak to an entrepreneur that likes taking risks like how do we put that message system together because entrepreneurs that don't like taking risks and are hyper calculated and logical they might be turned off by that messaging. Are you okay with that? They're like, yeah, we don't like working with those clients. Okay, so you want to work with clients that are a little rebellious at heart, that are aggressive by nature. They like powerful messaging. Uh, They're a bit higher on the ego 
side of things. And they're like, yeah, like these clients just do really well with us. I'm like, great. So if we can create a message system that talks to that person and gets more of those clients and less of the logical clients, would you be happy? And they're like, yeah. So like, again, it's, I'm not a research agency. And oftentimes the problem is people don't have the budget for that. So we just have to work with the client to figure out like what, what gets them excited. Because if the client's excited for a certain type of personality, because they gel with it themselves, yeah. they're more likely to have more success anyways. Um, and then for big companies, like when we worked with Culture Kings, we're doing some work with Citibank. Um, they know their data. They're like, here's the data. Like we've got hundreds of thousands of customers and here's all the information. And they've paid the research companies and they've pulled all the data out of their, you know, out of their CRMs and their databases. And they're like, here's the data. So then we go through the data and we're like, okay. So for example, with Culture Kings, um, they noticed that, you know, um, teenage boys don't want to wear the same stuff their young brother does. So the company identified that we've got to stop selling children's clothes because mm. it's disrupting target audience. So even though it was making, you know, millions of dollars, they shut that down because it was impacting the target audience. So it's always a different case, um, but you just have to look at and pull as much information as you can out of what you have and make, make some good judgment calls and some good assumptions. Well, first of all, shout out to Simon Beard because I was watching one of his videos and he said that audience nowadays are smart enough and they can see through adverts. And he said, um, that's why he values, uh, and I'm just paraphrasing, values authentic content much more that and doesn't value what uh, content looks like um like a sales pitch basically that's what he meant i'm just paraphrasing from one of his videos so how does one make authentic content as an advert yeah i think it's people are really smart right like you know when you see a politician on stage and they're saying one thing but you don't see the body language really match what yeah. they're saying. They're like, I care for you, the people. And then they're really like calculated. And you're like, this seems a bit like put on. Um, it's what I call congruency. So congruency is you got to make sure everything you're doing kind of matches the message. And with copywriting, what often happens is if you read it and it sounds like someone wrote it, write it again. It's probably shit. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's a direct quote from David Ogilvy, minus the shit part. But um, <laughs> yeah, so with our copywriters, when they write ads, I say to them, I'm like, I can read that out loud and you tell me if it feels yucky, you just say it. And they read it out loud. They're like, yeah, it kind of feels yucky. It's, it looks good on the screen, but it feels weird. Yeah. How do we write that in a way that sounds like you've got your feet up on the table, you're sipping on a, a coffee and you're talking to your grandma? And they're like, oh, I'd probably just say it like this. I'm like, there you go. Like people try to over-engineer messaging. Yeah. Um, but we live in a world where people text everything. Yeah. And it's really jovial. It's really like loose and um, kind of like clever and witty, right? So when it's you try to write formal. Yeah, yeah, it's straightforward. It's to the point. So I think, I think you know, what Simon's pointing out there is you've got you to like remove the 
the bullshit when it comes to like the whole, these are the features and benefits and imagine your life like this, like that kind of stuff just doesn't fly with people. Um, yeah, you gotta, you gotta be a lot more down to earth, a lot more relatable. Dane, we rent out the studio and we're, we're on a crunch of time as well. And I'm so happy that you are here and you're doing this podcast. So just before we wrap this up, I wanted to ask you a question related to podcasting that in terms of podcasting, where do you see podcasts going and how big are going to, are podcasts going to be in terms of marketing, branding, or how does one brand their podcasts given that we're starting off? Yeah, I think the cool thing is this is quite a few trends depending on the community, right? So like if you look at the athletic community or the entrepreneurship community or the entertainment community or even like comedians, right? Um, there's all these different communities and they all operate very differently. So I don't think there's a one size fits all situation here. Um, but something I found interesting was um, uh, a guy named Mark Agnon who manages and operates the flagrant two podcasts with Andrew Schultz. Yeah. Um, I've spent many hours with him talking about what, what they did with flagrant. Yeah. And he said to me, he's like the whole strategy behind Andrew Schultz's podcast was to create the feeling and the perception that you were hanging out with your boys back home when you're at college away from your friends. Yeah. That's how the podcast took off. And he's like, we were originally talking about sport, but then we realized that like, we could talk about anything so long as the podcast felt like I was hanging out with my friends. And I think for me, at least that, you know, it's like Netflix, like people pick genres that they like. Some people like horror movies, some people like comedy, yada, yada. Like people like different formats of podcasts and there's definitely the interview podcast, like what we're doing here. Um, but what I'm seeing arising is like entertainment podcasts that are kind of reinventing how to approach the whole pod experience. Um, you know, like, Hot Ones is a great example of like someone that like really did something weird and different. Um, but the podcast I'm about to launch, Target Table, it's it's like a this is the set behind me. But we're like we're we're setting up where we're talking about a topic and we're ripping into it and we're bringing a bunch of experts from different industries to sit and talk about something. So like we'll talk about e-commerce, <clears throat> and I'll pick an e-commerce store owner. I'll pick an advert person. I'll pick a graphic designer. A photographer and we'll sit down and we'll like talk about e-commerce together as a as a group. Um, so I think podcasting is just becoming mainstream. And I think it's there's no right or wrong. It's just pick something you're excited about and you'll amass a community. But I've just noticed the trends are um for sure people that are talking about hot topics. Like I, I see this on YouTube, people that are like, this is happening, this is a nervy subject that's a touchy subject like people seem to be jumping on it's almost like the news like how yes. the news use yeah. Yeah. hot topics to try to to drive the views and i noticed people that get the most views are grabbing things that are hot like oppenheimer versus bobby right now like everyone's talking about that right yeah. so they grab the trends and they kind of ride on that the problem is the podcast becomes um time stamped so maybe yeah. in a month that podcast it, is irrelevant it right? itself. yeah it dates itself. So like, I think it, the smart move is like, how do I make a podcast that is timeless? Maybe you touch on stuff, but it's not always about that. Cause I think then 
on the YouTube algorithm, it's all about getting views on old videos. Like I was chatting to a guy yesterday who makes quite a lot of money on YouTube. Um, and he's like, yeah, man, I get paid a lot on content I made three years ago, four years ago, two years ago. Because uh, he's like, it's a library of stuff and it's not timestamped. So I think if you're trying to monetize YouTube, if that's a part of your strategy, then it's like, how do I not timestamp content? Or I'm just trying to get as much traction and growth as possible. Let's hit some hot topics. Um, that's the cool thing about strategy. There's no one flavor. You can kind of make what you want of it. Um, and as long as you're captivating and you've got charisma and you're interesting to listen to, I think people will tune it. Yeah. How big are you on niching out your podcast? Yeah, I think um, by no means that I'm <laughs> an expert at it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but my podcast, I think, I think it's important you have a consistent theme. So maybe mm -hmm. niche can feel a little restrictive. Um, we, we, when we branded podcasts, we're like, what are your five repeating themes, right? Like what are the things you're just kind of sticking to so that Naturally. me as a listener, I, yeah, mm -hmm. I have an expectation of what I'm going to get. So like, if you watch the walking dead, which yeah. I've watched all of, and some seasons are great and some seasons I'm like, what's happening? Some seasons I'm miserable because it sucks. And then other seasons I'm excited again. So I think like, just as an example, like my journey watching the Walking Dead series, um, it was inconsistent. The show just was all over the place. Yeah. And sometimes it was great. Sometimes it wasn't. And it was driving me nuts. And I think when you listen to a podcast and it's like kind of all over the place, it could drive people nuts. It could drive your audience away. But if you have like a nice consistent rhythm and theme to it, where it kind of, the reason why I listen doesn't change uh, and it stays there. I think it's important that they, they have a nice rhythm, a nice theme to them um, versus jumping too, too much all over the place. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but again, I'm not an expert at podcasts. This is just my opinion on it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Well, listen, man, I, I think I feel this, an hour or so felt like five minutes. I don't know. I feel like we only just touched the surface. We'll definitely have to get you back at some stage. And yeah, <laughs> let's do it. I really wanted to tap into your mind and just get to know about you as a person. I have listened to you on other podcasts as well, but I just wanted to use some questions. Given that we both sort of had like a traumatic-ish childhood. And I thought that to me gave me motivation to just keep doing shit. Just keep moving yeah. and stuff. And I think that's something I relate to you as well. Um, and I'm deeply happy that you're here and also deeply unsatisfied from this podcast because there's so much I want to ask you. Uh, and it'll be an awesome opportunity to have you on again. Um, yeah. Thank Bring you me back. Yeah. Yeah. Doing this. Absolutely. And, um, catch you soon, I guess. <laughs> hey, big love, guys. Thanks so much for having me.